Welcome to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. It's 1927 in New York City, and you are standing with your friends outside the Roxy Theater, waiting to see Wings, one of the biggest films of the year. A romance about two World War I pilots competing for the same woman, starring it girl Clara Bow? Yes, please. It's your first time at the Roxy, which only just opened. It seats 6,200 people, making it the largest theater in the world. It is one of many show-stoppingly lavish movie palaces of the period, built by film studios and designed for full orchestras to accompany their silent films. These palaces make the viewing experience a luxurious night out, but not one that'll break the bank. After you pay your 25 cents for a ticket, you glide into the Roxy's palatial lobby, which boasts enormous chandeliers, marble columns, and exquisitely furnished salons. Soon, an attentive and attractive usher will begin leading you to the auditorium, reminding you that there are absolutely no snacks allowed inside the air-conditioned theater. You find your plush red seat and settle in as the lights go down, the projector flickers to life, and the orchestra begins to play. Going to the movies is one of 1920s America's favorite pastimes, and we are coming to worship our stars. By 1925, 50 million people are going to the movies every week. That's about half of the nation's population. And though theaters, like so many places in this era, remain segregated, going to the movies is one of the few leisure activities that's popular across all social classes, enjoyed by socialites, bootleggers, and factory workers alike. Most who go to see movies are under the age of 35, and a huge number of them are women. We ladies love our films and the stars who dominate them, especially our female stars. The actresses of the era had a huge impact on the American woman's imagination, their tastes, their buying habits, even their morals. Hollywood's actresses and the character types they play influence how we express and understand ourselves. Let's dive into this iconic symbol of the 1920s and the ladies who came to define them. Grab your girlfriends, your favorite fan mag, and don't forget your ticket, it's movie night. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My boss ladies, Miranda, Cayenne, Raven, and Leia. My warrior queens, two lovely Alexises, Amanda, Kate, Chelsea, Ika, Jessica, June, Neve, and Sloan, Samantha, and Sarah. My Imperial Empresses, Alyssa, Bridget, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, Kate, Samara, and Teresa. And my Lady Pharaohs, Lori, Kimberly, Sophie, Laura, Cot, Cheryl, and the fabulous Courtney's. This show just wouldn't be possible without the generous support of all my patrons. For just a few dollars a month, they each get episodes early and completely ad-free, exclusive bonus episodes, discounts on merchandise, full interviews with guests, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website, theexplorespodcast.com. Before we talk about the silent starlets of the 1920s, we've got to talk a little bit about the history of film itself. No one person invented cinema, but back in 1891, Thomas Edison, of the telegraph and light bulb, manufactured something called a kinetograph, or motion picture camera, and the kinetoscope, a motion picture viewer that allowed a single viewer to watch it. France's Lumiere brothers were the first to show projected movie pictures to a paying audience in 1895. The popularity of these very short films and the industry they spawned grew from there. By the early 1900s, Nickelodeons were all the rage. These 15 to 20 minute interconnected film reels, often featuring people dancing, trains and planes, or cars moving at great speeds, vaudeville acts, newsreels, and animated shorts. Just a nickel would buy you an hour's worth of Nickelodeons. But then a film came along that changed the moving picture game entirely. 
D.W. Griffith's 1915 film, The Birth of a Nation, was about the Ku Klux Klan restoring peace to the South after the Civil War. Unfortunate subject matter aside, this three-hour silent black-and-white extravaganza was the first real blockbuster, and it established many of the baseline features of modern cinematography. Thus, films leading up to the 1920s were usually 90 to 120 minutes long, and featured dramatic action, elaborate sets, and a fairly new phenomena, movie stars. The 20s see a number of firsts in film, the first Western, the first sci-fi, the first two-color Technicolor film. But then along come sound films, or talkies. Introduced in 1925, in 1926, Fox adds a soundtrack directly onto a strip of film using their movie tone system, which will become predominant. In 1927, Warner Brothers builds the first sound studio and produces the first feature-length talkie and musical, The Jazz Singer. Although it only had about 350 words of dialogue and six songs, it becomes the highest-grossing film of the year and revolutionizes the industry. Just a year later, Walt Disney debuts the first speaking cartoon, Steamboat Willie. Sound films really change our film-going experience. Audiences are now expected to be quiet so others can hear the dialogue, which makes viewing a more private affair. By 1927, talkies have become so popular that movie attendance jumps to 100 million Americans a week. Studios and theaters have to be converted to sound at great expense. By the late 20s, studios often make two versions of films so they can be released at both sound and silent theaters. By 1930, the silent movie has all but disappeared, and some of the era's biggest movie stars go with them. Although leading ladies like Joan Crawford and Gloria Swanson are able to make the transition to sound, some, with heavy accents, have a much harder time. So what sorts of movies are we seeing in the 20s? Most silent films can be classified in types or genres, with instantly recognizable storylines, settings, costumes, and characters. Popular genres include westerns, swashbucklers, historical costume dramas, war films, romances, biblical epics, crime capers, slapstick comedies, and melodramas. The demand for new films is so great that studios are churning out about 800 a year. Most of these aren't very good, simply because they're produced so quickly and manufactured in assembly line style. They largely bank on the popularity of the film's star rather than, say, well-written material. Often, it's the female star who brings starry-eyed viewers to the theater. They have a kind of sway over audiences and American culture than any women have before. In the 1920s, actresses are the beating heart of our movies. There are more famous actresses than there are actors. Female stars are often billed ahead of their male counterparts, because studios know that audiences have really come to see their favorite starlet. As one of the era's most famous, Gloria Swanson, once boasted, All they had to do was put my name on a marquee and watch the money roll in. These women are idols to be watched, icons to be worshipped. Actresses have a quasi-religious connection with their audience, who view them as accessible heroines who belong to the public above all else. Men want to be with them, and women want to be them. Shop girls copy them, and housewives escape through them. They copied my clothes. Colleen Moore once said, No longer did a girl have to be beautiful to be sought after. Any plain Jane could become a flapper. No wonder they grabbed me to their hearts and made me their movie idol. They teach American women how to behave, how to dress, how to flirt, how to style their hair, and even how to kiss. No wonder the girls of older days before the movies were so modest and bashful. One college gal said, They never saw Clara Beau. I think the movies have a great deal to do with the present day so-called wildness. If we didn't see such examples in the movies, where would we get the idea of being hot? We wouldn't. These women have a kind of power, financial success, and independence that few ladies can achieve in the 20s. But stardom also comes with a strict set of rules and expectations, very little privacy, and a kind of pressure that proves deadly for some. But before we meet some of these movie starlets, let's take a look at the Hollywood studio machine. There are over 20 studios by the end of the decade, although the big five, MGM, Paramount, RKO, 
20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers hold 70% of the national box office profits. Although Paramount is on the East Coast, most of the big studios are in California. Four out of five films worldwide are coming out of Hollywood. And while the movie industry becomes famously exploitative of its women, as well as a patriarchal sausage fest, in the beginning, it's a place where women compete on roughly equal terms with men. They direct, produce, and write scripts, as well as acting. Between one-third and fully half of early screenwriters are women. Eleanor Glynn, best-selling author of the 1910s and 20s, is offered good money to come to Hollywood and write what are called scenarios for the big screen. In 1920, she makes $10,000 a picture, and she even directs some of those films herself. Hollywood's fledgling film industry is infamous for scandal. Mysterious murders, grisly suicides, sordid affairs, rape cases, and drug habits. In fact, when a young Clara Bow told her mother she was going to Hollywood to become a star, she said, You're going straight to hell. I'd rather see you dead. Hollywood's reputation gets so bad for public relations that in 1922, the studios establish a self-imposed censorship board called the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. This group will be responsible for the Hayes Code of the 1930s, which will regulate the content of every film in America and ban everything from interracial dating to lustful kissing on screen. For our 1920s stars, though, this censorship board affects them most deeply in the form of their contracts. Every film star's contract has a morals clause included, which says that her private conduct can't bring her public disrepute or offend the public's sense of decency. This broad brush allows studios total control of every aspect of a star's life. As the head of publicity at MGM remembers, We told stars what they could say. And they did what we said because they knew we knew best. And studios aren't afraid to completely reinvent their stars. In fact, they often give them whole new names and make up their bios wholesale. Take Theta Bara, the screen siren who many refer to as the vamp. Her studio tells the public that this sex icon is a man-eating seductress from Arabia, who is often carried around by Nubian footmen. Because why not? It's a striking image, to be sure, but complete fabrication. She was from Cincinnati and happily married and didn't need any men. I mean, that we know of. As the studios shape these stars' personas, they create a fantasy of female glamour and empowerment that defines what female stardom, and by extension, female identity, might mean. These stars' private lives are intertwined with their public personas, so they have to think carefully about all their choices. Mary Pickford, though universally adored, found herself trapped in a horrible marriage, partially because she worried the scandal of a divorce would ruin her image. Studio bosses cover up affairs with shotgun weddings, arrange cover-up romances for homosexual stars, and schedule abortions in Tijuana and tell the press it's an appendectomy. Controlling their stars' public images is all part of the Hollywood game, and its actresses mostly have no choice but to play it. This image control includes policing actresses' bodies as well. Menstrual periods are tracked on a posted chart, wisdom teeth are pulled to get the sunken cheek look, and breasts are lifted with surgical tape. Because let's be honest, a starlet has to look the part both on and off the screen. As the savvy Joan Crawford told one interviewer, If you're going to be a star, you have to look like a star. And I never go out unless I look like Joan Crawford, the movie star. If you want to see the girl next door, go next door. Most actresses have weight limits written into their contracts. One studio reserves the right to terminate a contract if an artist ever exceeds 130 pounds. Yikes! The magazines report that Theta Barra eats nothing but two baked potatoes a day with milk, and that Gloria Swanson subsists solely on a diet of herbal tea, seaweed, and organically grown vegetables. Many of their fans follow suit, hoping to look as thin as their favorite stars. The Hollywood 18-Day Diet, which promises to help you lose a pound a day, becomes popular. It seems to involve eating little more than toast, citrus fruit, and eggs to the tune of 500 calories a day. Diet, wrote Photoplay magazine of the slimming craze. It has put one world-famous star in her grave, has caused the illness of another, 
has wrecked careers and has become, laughably, through its practice in Hollywood, the great American menace. And it creates a kind of pressure for both stars and fans that lead to serious medical trouble. In 1928, at just 18 years old, actress Molly O'Day is threatened with the loss of her contract if she can't fit into the dress size the studio chose for her. In desperation, she turns to doctors who promise an operation for the removal of surplus fat at LA's Queen of Angels Hospital. Hollywood's first weight loss surgery is performed as a desperate last resort on a woman who definitely doesn't need it. We know that these actresses have some serious star power, so why put up with such rigid restrictions? Mostly because they feel they have no choice. The studios have all the power, thanks to the standard seven-year contract they invented. While stars are locked in for the long haul, those contracts allow studios a chance every six months to either terminate the relationship or renew it for an increased salary. Stars are financially rewarded if they behave. Unsurprisingly, this means that actresses are often exploited, especially if they are just starting out. Clara Bow's agent pays her $750 a week and then loans her out to studios for over $3,000 a week, keeping the profits for himself. He often double books her, so much so that she appears in 14 movies in just 12 months. She works from 6 a.m. to midnight, six days a week, and eventually she collapses from exhaustion. There was no other occupation in the world, film star Louise Brooks remembered. That so closely resembled enslavement as the career of a film star. Image control is happening on screen, too. Actresses of the 1920s embody a narrow band of stereotypical roles that studios continue to offer them. Just as there are certain genres or types of movies, studios decide there are certain types of women as well. These can be separated into roughly two categories. Let's call them the virgin and the whore. We have the sweetest pie heroine you can't help but root for, the rural sweetheart, the cheerful tomboy, the virginal martyr, the doting wife, the loving mother. And then we have the wilder end of the spectrum, the flapper, the vamp, the exotic beauty, the she-devil, and the man-eating seductress. Most actresses are cast in the same roles over and over, and their personalities and off-screen lives often dictate the roles they play. The glamorous Pola Negri is almost always cast as the exotic beauty, while the fun-loving Colleen Moore is almost always the flapper. A few stars are given the opportunity to showcase their range or eventually become so powerful that they can choose their own roles. For the most part, though, they are relegated to a specific type, forced to make formula films that have them playing the same kind of woman. Let's be honest, 1920s Hollywood isn't interested in making films about smart, fierce, ambitious women. That goes against prevailing notions about women's proper roles. Studios think that people are unlikely to pay to see a film that doesn't end with the wild girl being tamed by a man. It's all well and good for a flapper to get up to mischief on screen, so long as she ends up a wife by the end. Movie heroines in the 20s are not allowed to sacrifice love for their career. They can pursue a career, but only if, by the conclusion, it takes a backseat to a happily ever after with their new husband. Despite the freewheeling image of the flapper in popular culture, Victorian values and the triumph of conventional virtue prevails in the silent films of the 20s. Even the scandalous on-screen vamp and flapper never really challenge the status quo. They simply give it a little bit of sex appeal. At their very wildest, actresses like Clara Bow will pose in satin and flirt with a married man on screen. But by the time the credits roll, they've always been redeemed by an appropriate bow. Or in films like The Careless Woman, Foolish Wives, The Lure of the Nightclub, or Wickedness Preferred, women are the heroines at all, but the villains. They commit infidelity, larceny, even murder, and they all meet with horrible ends. These women serve as cautionary tales and a warning. Good girls don't do such things. They get married and they have some babies. Ironically, considering the messages their on-screen personas are sending, these actresses consistently choose careers over marriage. They are unapologetically ambitious women who embrace fame, money, sex, and power. As Joan Crawford once said, you have to be self-reliant and strong to survive in this town. Otherwise, you will be destroyed. 
Many of these 1920s film stars are known for being cunning businesswomen with too many notches on their bedpost to bother counting, and they relish it. So let's meet some of these women, the actresses whose faces are on every bedroom wall and theater screen in the 1920s. Like nearly all the silent film stars of the era, Mary Pickford was born into a poor family and became an actress through sheer force of will. My career was planned, she said. There was never anything accidental about it. It was planned, it was painful, it was purposeful. Born Gladys Marie Smith, she made her stage debut at six years old to help support her family. At the age of 12, she approached a theater producer and introduced herself by saying, I am an actress, but I want to become a good one. Impressed, the producer changed her name to Mary Pickford and cast her in a lead role, where she soon caught the eye of famed film director D.W. Griffith. After Mary's first day on set, Griffith was so pleased with her that she was able to negotiate a pay raise, doubling her salary. She would appear in over 50 films in 1909 alone. By 1912, Mary was the first bona fide movie star, having made a name for herself by playing childlike characters on screen. The virginal, rural sweetheart archetype was her bread and butter. Her signature blonde ringlets made her easy to recognize, and audiences adored her in her cheerful, self-reliant underdog roles, like that of Judy, the spunky orphan in Daddy Long Legs. Fans quickly dubbed Mary America's Sweetheart, and by 1916, she was the first millionaire film star. By the 1920s, Mary is the undisputed queen of Hollywood. She had already successfully negotiated a record-breaking salary of $10,000 a week, but now she's determined to use her power to gain more control over her films. She joins the two biggest male film stars of the day, Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks, and actress Lillian Gish to create the independent production company United Artists, a move designed to stop studio exploitation and give actors more money, control, and, as Mary said herself, Freedom, it's a heady wine, and having tasted it, you find it impossible to go back to working for someone else. She'll also set up the Mary Pickford Production Company, allowing her to copyright all of her own productions, guaranteeing her 50% of the profits, a massive salary, and full creative control. It also allows her to broaden her range. She proves that she can switch effortlessly from comedies to dramas, from tomboy child to elegant lady. She often challenges herself by playing multiple roles in the same film. Uniquely for the era, she can choose her own scripts, hire her own co-stars, and act as her own producer and director. The founder of Paramount remarked, Mary had her hand in everything, writing scripts, arguing with directors, making suggestions to other players, and her ideas were helpful. With her cameraman adding, She knew everything there was to know about motion pictures. But Mary isn't the industry's only savvy businesswoman. Gloria Swanson became a star at Paramount for a string of successful romance films, in which she often plays the temptress. She brings in so much money for the studio that, in 1923, she negotiates a new contract that gives her an astronomical $6,500 a week. Her image is very much the glamorous fashion icon. Her extravagant headdresses of peacock feathers are often as important as the movie's plot. Her hairstyles, hat styles, and skirt lengths inspire millions of women to follow her lead. In 1925, she joins United Artists as one of the film industry's pioneering women filmmakers and creates her own company, Gloria Productions. At the first annual Academy Awards, Gloria receives the Best Actress nomination for her 1928 film, Sadie Thompson, which she produced herself. Get it, Gloria? Gloria was pretty unapologetic about her ambition. I have decided that when I am a star, I will be every inch and every moment a star. Unlike Mary Pickford, who everyone seems to love, Gloria is divisive, and that's why many women love her. She is a glamorous diva, gives outrageous quotes to fan mags, and isn't afraid to make a bold claim. I not only believe in divorce, but I sometimes think that I don't believe in marriage at all. She once told Motion Picture Magazine, After all, marriage is just a game. The more elastic the rules, the less temptation there is for cheating. I think that divorce should be made more easy instead of more difficult. 
Mary Pickford may have been the first woman to make a million in Hollywood, but Gloria Swanson is the first to do the same and spend it loudly. In 1924, Photoplay magazine reports that Gloria spent 25,000 on furs, 50,000 on gowns, and 10,000 on lingerie. All this at a time when the average annual income is around $3,500. But she has no problem defending it. In those days, they wanted us to live like kings and queens. She remembered of the studios. So we did. And why not? We were in love with life. We were making more money than we ever dreamed existed, and there was no reason to believe that it would ever stop. Pola Negri, too, is something of a character, and like Gloria, she's often typecast in the exotic beauty role. Born Barbara Apollonia Chalupiec in Lipno, Poland, she works hard to make it into the Imperial Academy of Ballet, then eventually makes the transition to film. Her first, Slave to Her Senses, in 1914, really capitalized on her sexuality and beauty. Later films like In Passion, One Arabian Night, and Gypsy Blood continue the trend. Her fans love to read tales of her extravagant and glamorous lifestyle. She has a white Rolls Royce upholstered in white velvet and dresses her chauffeur to match. She keeps a pet tiger on a leash and parades him down Sunset Boulevard, wrapped in chinchilla and draped in jewels. She even starts the fad for painting your toenails fire engine red. But she also makes staying single seem glamorous. I do not believe in marriage, she said. It is not for me. I am independent. Freedom comes before anything. And that lifestyle, that choice, is a radical one to the women who love to come to her movies. But not everyone is willing to make a show of their private lives to keep their audiences coming. Take Greta Garbo, whose beauty is so otherworldly that she is often cast as the Temptress. In 1926, she stars in a film called The Temptress, after which she complains, I do not want to be a silly Temptress. I cannot see any sense in getting dressed up and doing nothing but tempting men in pictures. Fair enough, Greta. Garbo made her name in the Swedish film industry before catching the eye of MGM, who brings her to Hollywood in 1925. It's clear pretty much right away that Garbo has something special, with one MGM employee saying, I've been watching that new girl work. I don't know what it is that she has, but I do know that everyone on the lot who can get away from whatever he is supposed to be doing goes to watch her. Part of Garbo's mystique is her privacy. Although most actresses comply with their studio's incessant publicity requests, Garbo avoids industry functions and fan mags. She often spends time alone, wears men's clothes, never marries, rarely gives interviews, and never signs autographs. Part of the reason why, no doubt, is that she's bisexual at a time when that's a difficult thing to be out loud. We now know that she had an affair with Louise Brooks and a longtime romance with Mercedes de Acosta. Garbo's star power and sheer courage allow her to negotiate for that privacy. After a grueling four-month filming schedule and the death of her sister, she refuses to make another film, despite the fact that MGM threatens to deport her. Garbo stays home, hires a lawyer, and disappears for six months, only returning to work after she wins a larger salary, the right to veto roles, and is no longer expected to do interviews or endorse products. The exotic beauty as temptress is one popular archetype, but there is also a darker sort of seductress called the vamp. The term vamp first originated with Theta Bara, who made a career playing femme fatales. Between 1915 and 1919, she starred in 40 films with titles like Sin, Destruction, The Serpent, and Cleopatra, in which she played wicked sex goddess types who lure men to their ruin. Her studio, Fox, leaned into that image, telling fan mags that Theta Bara was an anagram for Arab death, and that she was the daughter of a French artist and his Arabian mistress. Fox continually billed her as the wickedest woman in the world, and many local boards condemned her films for being too scandalous. By the 1920s, the vamp mantle is being passed to two new stars, Louise Brooks and Clara Bow. They become famous playing wild, sensual seductresses, often in movies that are all about the flapper. Louise got her start as a semi-nude dancer in the Ziegfeld Follies, 
When she was 18, she signed with Paramount and made a number of films, but her role in Pandora's Box really made her a star. Part of her vamp appeal is her scandalous personal life. She is known for taking both male and female lovers, and in 1925, she sues a photographer to prevent his publishing some pretty racy nudes. Louise's acting isn't nearly as influential as her look, though. Her sleek black bob causes a massive sensation. After Photoplay wrote, She is so very Manhattan, very young, exquisitely hard-boiled. Her black eyes and sleek black hair are as brilliant as Chinese lacquer. Thousands of women run to the salon to ask for the Louise. Clara Bow grew up extremely poor in Brooklyn, dropping out of school in 1921 to pursue her dreams of being a star. She had a hard time at first, fielding all sorts of rejections. As she wrote later, and listeners, please forgive my attempt at a Brooklyn accent, there was always something. I was too young, or too little, or too fat. Usually, I was too fat. In 1922, she sends her picture into Brewster Magazine's National Fame and Fortune acting contest. She nails several screen tests, wins the contest, and is sent off to Hollywood. She spends several years being loaned out to studios to play smaller roles. But in 1926, Paramount casts her as the lead in the film Man Trap. The film is a smash hit, with one critic writing, Clara Bow, and how? What a man-trap she is, and how this picture is going to make her. Audiences fall in love with Bo's vibrant energy, and Paramount gets to work capitalizing on her fame. In the next two years, she'll star in 14 movies, all of which are formula films whose plots revolve around Clara just being Clara. Audiences come to see her be her, so she and her characters are often interchangeable. Those characters are usually wild, sexy flappers, and she embodies the sexual freedom of the modern new woman, both on screen and off. She's a bit of an outcast in Hollywood, with her heavy accent and vulgar vocabulary. She tells one magazine columnist, Marriage ain't woman's only job no more. A girl who's worked hard and earned her place ain't gonna be satisfied as a wife. I know this. I wouldn't give up my work for marriage. I think a modern girl's capable of keeping a job and a husband. Clara is well known for her many public affairs. The more I see of men, the more I like dogs. She quipped, her drunken exploits, and her reckless driving. She personifies what the New York Times will later call the giddier aspects of an unreal era, the Roaring Twenties. Clara Bow becomes a star in Man Trap, but she becomes the movie star of all movie stars in 1927, thanks to her role as Betty Lou in the film It. It began as a novel about sex appeal by British screenwriter Eleanor Glynn. She takes it to Paramount, who agrees to make It a film, but only in exchange for Eleanor labeling their new star, Clara Bow, as the It Girl. Eleanor agrees, in exchange for $50,000, and Paramount's publicity department are thrilled their star will have such a catchy new nickname. Eleanor soon embarks on a lecture tour and announces, Of all the lovely young ladies I've met in Hollywood, Clara Bow has it. It is an inner magic, an animal magnetism. When the film eventually premieres, opening week grosses double that of every other movie in every city across America, except Manhattan. It was a box office hit, with one variety critic writing, This bow girl certainly has that certain it for which the picture is named, and she just runs away with the film. In the movie, Clara plays a sales girl who lusts after her rich boss, the owner of the department store in which she works. Betty, her character, sells lingerie. But throughout the film, she proves even more adept at selling herself, aggressively pursuing her boss, and eventually marrying him. How does she manage to snag such a wealthy catch? By having it, of course. In the film's opening title cards, the audience learns exactly what it is. That quality possessed by some, which draws all others with its magnetic force. With it, you win all men if you are a woman, and all women if you are a man. It can be a quality of the mind as well as a physical attraction. It is that particular quality which some persons possess, which attracts the opposite sex. 
The possession of it must be absolutely unselfconscious and must have that magnetic sex appeal that is irresistible. Clara Bow has sex appeal, and the film It presents a world in which it is acceptable for women to be fully in control of their sexuality. In fact, rather than being punished for her sexually forward behavior, Betty Lou is rewarded for it, landing the wealthy husband by the end of the film. In fact, many of Clara's films, It, Man Trap, and Get Your Man, involve her playing sexually independent gals taking on aggressive roles in courtship, turning society's norms upside down. On screen, Clara unapologetically acts out female sexual agency, and the ladies love her for it. As F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, She was the girl of the year, the it girl, the girl for whose service every studio was in violent competition. This girl was the real thing, someone to stir every pulse in the nation. Clara becomes one of the first sex symbols in America. Ironically, the It Girl doesn't even like the idea of It, and she hates the pretentious Eleanor Glynn. Hilariously, when asked, Ms. Bo, when you add it all up, what is It? She replies, I ain't real sure. And yet her fame only makes Paramount work her harder, and the pressure mounts for Clara to live up to her new status. As one contemporary wrote, She tried to be vivacious, she tried to be fascinating, she tried to be clever, and she just worked her body and mind and soul to death. While Louise and Clara play more sexualized flappers, Colleen Moore and Joan Crawford find fame by playing a more wholesome, free-spirited variety. Although Joan is now considered the quintessential flapper, she only really breaks out in 1928's Our Dancing Daughters. For most of the 20s, it's Colleen Moore with her Dutch boy-style bob who is considered the epitome of flapperdom. Colleen's big break came as a flapper in 1923's Flaming Youth. Author F. Scott Fitzgerald, ever humble, would later boast in Motion Picture Magazine, I was the spark that lit up Flaming Youth. Colleen Moore was the torch. What little things we are to have caused all that trouble. Colleen stars in many flapper films, all of which feature her as a spunky working gal who appears modern, but also keeps herself just on the right side of virtuous. When asked to describe her flapper characters, Colleen said, She likes her freedom, and she likes to be a bit daring, and snap her cunning, manicured little fingers in the face of the world. But fundamentally, she's the same sort of girl as my grandmama when she was young. The majority of film stars in the 1920s are white. When someone of another race is needed, it's not uncommon for a white actor to slap on black or yellow face. A few women of color do make it to Hollywood, though. Sadly, most are reduced to playing roles defined wholly by racist stereotypes. Dolores Del Rio was born to an aristocratic Mexican family. When her mother told her, No daughter from a good family ever became an actress, Dolores replied, Very well then, I will be the first. After her 1925 debut, Dolores becomes a leading lady and is often billed in sexualized exotic lover roles, which often frustrates her. But she is considered one of the most beautiful stars of her era, with playwright George Bernard Shaw writing, The two most beautiful things in the world are the Taj Mahal and Dolores Del Rio. You ain't wrong, George. Dolores is friends with Frida Kahlo and Greta Garbo, has an affair with Orson Welles, and goes on to become one of the most important figures in Mexican cinema. Lupe Velez hails from Mexico as well, and she also finds fame playing stereotypically exotic, hot-tempered women. Her wild unpredictability is part of what makes her so beloved. As one studio exec once said of her, When she puckers up her lips, it's impossible to tell if she's going to kiss you, bite you, or spit on you. Her colorful off-screen life is just as wild, earning her the nickname The Mexican Spitfire. She has high-profile affairs with Charlie Chaplin, Clark Gable, and Gary Cooper. Her relationship with Cooper is quite famously rocky. For example, he required stitches after an incident in which she chased him around with a knife. And things eventually got so bad that he lost 45 pounds and his studio sent him on a vacation. Whilst he was boarding the train, Velez showed up and shot at him. Poor Cooper definitely needed a vacay after that. Whilst Latina actresses of the 20s are relegated to playing the exotic lover, black women are mostly cast as mammies, maids, or domestics. 
Few big movies are interracial, and studios don't like to hire people of color. Nonetheless, there are independent black filmmakers creating movies for black audiences, and their films are often successful, despite not having nationwide releases. Evelyn Preer is the leading lady in ten such films by noted black director Oscar Micheaux. Her talent eventually catches Paramount's interest, and Evelyn appears in three of their films. Eventually, she walks out on her contract as she refuses to perform in blackface or act in roles that she feels demean her race. Nina Mae McKinney also ends up leaving Hollywood due to the lack of opportunities for black actresses. Nina was first discovered by white Hollywood director King Vidor while performing in a chorus line. King had decided to make the first mainstream studio film with an all-black cast, and he hired Nina to be his leading lady. Starring in the 1929 sound film Hallelujah, Nina became the first black actress to hold the leading role in a mainstream film and the first black performer to sign a long-term contract with MGM. Hallelujah was a big success, and yet Nina won't be cast in any other major roles. She's too beautiful to play a maid, they decide, but they also can't cast her as a glamorous leading lady. Because interracial romances are banned under the Hays Code. Instead, like many black artists of this era, Nina goes to Europe to perform in cabarets and finds so much success there that she never comes back. And then there's Anna Mae Wong. Born in L.A. to first-generation Chinese-American parents, she grew up loving the movies and using them as a way to escape the racist bullying she often faced. She becomes the first Chinese-American woman to feature in the movies and a real fashion icon. But she, like so many other non-white women in the films in the 20s, grew frustrated with the stereotypical and sometimes frankly demeaning roles the studios tried to force her to play. <laughs> The public's hunger to find out more about their favorite stars inspires the first celebrity gossip mags. Magazines like Photoplay, Play, Motion Picture, and Screenland are filled with stories and photos of stars, making fans feel like they really know them. They offer film reviews, answer questions about how movies are made, and, of course, share juicy gossip about the stars' love lives. They endlessly debate and poll their readers about which actor is the most handsome or which actress is the most fashionable. No in-depth expose or interview can get too personal. Reporters ask female stars a host of what they must find inane and invasive questions. How often I ate dessert, what my favorite breed of dog was, if I dyed my hair, Gloria Swanson complained, what my favorite color was, if I got depressed on rainy days, what my favorite flower was, if I considered myself stuck up, if I thought so-and-so was a nice dresser, if I ever obeyed silly impulses. Most issues come with full-page photographs of their cover star, designed to be cut out and hung up on the wall. They include all the intimate details about the stars that fans clamor for, what color their eyes are, what perfume they wear, and who they're dating. Most of this info is happily provided by the studio's publicity department. These details make the stars seem more real, but it also solidifies them as market commodities. Reading these magazines enables fans to get as close as possible to their on-screen role models. Some magazines offer advice columns, penned by the stars themselves, and give fans studio addresses so they can send their favorite actresses a letter, or maybe three. The readers of these magazines, many of which have a circulation of at least half a million, are white, unmarried teenage girls from the working and middle classes. Their obsession with movies and the stars become something of a nationwide joke. Much like our culture poked fun at the Twilight-loving teenage gal and her obsessive fandom, people in the 20s complain about the budding flapper gals who they think are way too invested in the movies. These girls scream with delight at the theaters, bob their hair to look just like Louise Brooks, spend their allowance on short skirts to look like Colleen Moore, and get grounded for staying out too late to see the latest Garbo film. And look, their adoration can get a bit intense. Nobody knows the dark side of fandom better than Mary Pickford. When she marries Douglas Fairbanks, the ultimate celebrity it couple is mobbed on their honeymoon. Mary is bodily pulled out of their open car, and Douglas ends up gallantly carrying his new wife on his shoulders so she won't be trampled. 
Studios actively encourage audience participation in fandom as a way for young women to interact with their famous role models. They're the ones who select the name Joan Crawford for Lucille Lesueur in Movie Weekly's Name the Star contest. They see films as a way to express agency, independence, and individuality, and they enjoy seeing stars act out some of their fantasies on screen. They, too, want to live adventurous, romantic lives. Movies help the 1920s gal discover herself and her sexuality, as they imagine themselves in situations where they aren't just housekeepers and mothers. Most significantly, though, these mags also run contests like win a tour to a movie studio, or even become the next movie star. Film stars are special, but that doesn't mean you can't be one, too. After all, a young Clara Bow became a star by entering a magazine acting contest. She is a symbol of that possibility, and a reminder that your Hollywood dream might just come true. Thousands of girls write into movie mags, recognizing the film industry as a place to gain financial independence and fame. It makes sense, then, that film stars have a huge impact on the beauty industry in the 20s. Cosmetics, which were once considered scandalous, have become a more affordable and acceptable indulgence, and our stars are making us covet them in a whole new way. Our actresses are the ultimate expression of modern womanhood, and if they're wearing makeup, obviously we can too. Women covet Clara's pouty bow-shaped lips, Joan's expressive eyebrows, and Gloria's sultry dark eyes. Advertisers know this, and they aren't afraid to exploit it, with one Pons ad reading, Actresses and dancers whose skin must always be at its loveliest get from Pond's vanishing cream just the effect they have always wanted. Advertisers in the 20s often use actress testimonials to convince women to buy their products, often implying that part of the endorser's fame, beauty, and wealth is directly linked to the product being offered. Full-page ads in Photoplay, Vogue, or Ladies' Home Journal are too good of a promo opportunity for actresses to pass up. So, Mary Pickford becomes the face of Pompeian beauty, and Gloria Swanson advertises Maybelline mascara. By 1925, we American ladies are spending approximately $6 million a day on beauty products. Women are not going without cosmetics, one alarmed magazine article reports. Even if it takes the last spare change from their pocketbook to buy. Indeed, all you need is a dime to buy a tube of mascara. A dime, and you can look like Gloria Swanson too. The increased desire for cosmetics is about the stars, but also their massive advertising campaigns, many of which argue that women have an obligation to make themselves as beautiful as possible. Beauty mogul Helena Rubinstein is firmly in this camp, writing, There are no ugly women, only lazy ones. Helena and her fierce rival, Elizabeth Arden, often boast of their Hollywood clientele. Rubinstein, who works with Theta Barra and Pola Negri, declares smugly, these celebrated women have discovered the truism that although it is a good policy to be as beautiful as you can, it is the better policy to be more beautiful than you are. They take their beauty troubles to the woman who knows, and they have come to me. Unfortunately for Helena, many stars are also going to Hollywood makeup artist Max Factor. In the early years of film, actors applied their own cosmetics, usually theater grease paint, which didn't last long or look very good under the harsh lights of a film set. Max Factor revolutionized movie makeup in 1914 with his Supreme Grease Paint, a flexible formula that came in 12 shades and an easy tube applicator. Then he released Color Harmony Face Powder in a variety of shades designed to suit certain combinations of hair colors and skin tones. By the 1920s, Max Factor's products are widely used on film sets, and stars like Joan Crawford, Gloria Swanson, Mary Pickford, and Clara Bow are all devoted clients. He is credited with creating Clara's bow-shaped lip and Joan Crawford's smeared, overdrawn lip look. In 1920, Max Factor introduced Society Makeup, a cosmetics line intended for everyday use, to be sold to the general public. Before that, most women were referring to beauty products as cosmetics, but Max popularized the term makeup, based on the idea of making up one's face. 
He leans into his Hollywood background, securing an arrangement with studios that requires stars to endorse his products in testimonials. His first ads aren't in women's magazines, but movie magazines. At theater matinees, Max Factor salespeople set up beauty counters in the lobby. They make up women, raffle cosmetics kits, and offer personal beauty recommendations tailored to the individual gal. Unsurprisingly, Max's makeup becomes wildly popular. If you want to look like a film star, Max Factor is your brand. The 1920s film star had fame, riches, and a sort of glamour and independence that few gals of the era could achieve. But it all came at a price. The pressure to always look and embody perfection to always ensure they meet the expectations of their fans, to ensure they stay on the right side of their studios, despite the frustrations and sometimes limitations they put on them. For some stars, that pressure becomes more than they can bear. And yet they become some of the most recognizable and influential icons of the 20s, the women the average girl is most likely to adore, to idolize, to want to copy. They had a huge part to play in shaping the movies, and in shaping the era as well. I'm going to do a little shimmy and tip my cloche hat to that. Until next time. Thanks for listening. This episode is really just a primer for these early days of American cinema. There is so much more to explore. If you're interested, I highly suggest you check out the podcast You Must Remember This, where Karina Longworth expertly delves into the stories and personalities of Hollywood's golden era. If you like The Exploress, tell a friend about it, leave a review wherever you listen, become a patron of the show, or shoot me a message telling me what you love about it. Hearing from you always delights me. Much love to Carly Quinn for her help researching and writing this episode. You can find show notes, including a transcript and a list of my resources, at my website, theexplorespodcast.com. You can also find me over on Instagram, at theexplorespodcast. Thank you, as always, to Mr. Explores for the show's logo and merchandise designs, and the following for their vocal stylings. Cecilia, Valerie, April, Catherine, Jessica, Katie, Talon, and my brother John.